show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello. And welcome to the virtual purpose and drinks trivia and social history during the spooky season. Um, we've still got absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined, especially not this week. Um, I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Leary. Um, I was going to say, what are we serving today as you usually do? But I'm, instead, I'm going to say, what's your poison? What's your poison? Uh, well, I was going to say, I'm drinking a wine that I picked myself, I opened myself, I poured myself, and I know it's safe. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's why you... I was like, what's so impressive about selecting a wine and opening it yourself? That's mm. not new. I see I see where you're going. Safety first. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, it is spooky season, and we always do something appropriate for Halloween, so we're going to give you a double episode on poison. Um, I have got wine as well, actually. I've got um, a red wine from Chile, and it's the grape variety Carmenere, and mm-hmm. it will become apparent why I've chosen that one a little bit later on. Are you going to keel over halfway through this? Uh, that was going to be the gag, but uh, I'm not going to do it now because you've said it, so I have to think of something else. So we just finish there then? <laughs> yep. Thanks for joining. Um, cheers, everybody. <laughs> Um, I thought we'd start with the phrase, what's your poison? Uh, you obviously knew what that meant. Mm-hmm. Are you going to go all Susie Dent on us? Well, yeah, of course. Always start with etymology. Um, what does it say? So what does it mean? Um, what, what are you drinking? What's your yeah. drink? What's your poison? Yeah, exactly. And usually specifically alcohol. So um, it seems to have come from the 19th century USA and... From what I can tell, it's most likely a satire of the temperance movement. It it, it does, in, in records, it does predate the official temperance groups, but I think it comes from temperance people predating the groups, saying that, you know, alcohol is poison, and people just sort of making a joke about it. Um, so I can find it back as far as 1805 in America. Uh, what what else is quite funny about it in in the US is that it's probably come from um, POTUS as a as a Latin root, which is the past participle adjective meaning drunken, and of course POTUS also stands for President of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> that pleased me. Um, okay, etymology. We're going into it. So. A poison is any substance that harms the body's tissues, but we usually use it to refer to the likes of arsenic, cyanide, etc. As I said, it comes ultimately from Latin, uh, poto, I drink, potio. So it's from the same roots as potion and potable, meaning drinkable. And then it enters Old French and Middle English from the 13th century um, as said drink and becomes a verb a century later. So to poison someone rather than just the poison. We find it as an adjective from the 1520s and probably one of the more famous uses of it as an adjective um, around that time is poisoned chalice. Um, you familiar with that term? I am indeed. 
half a million I don't, I don't have a poison chalice. It <laughs> <laughs> means something that is initially thought of as being advantageous, but which is later recognised as being harmful, disadvantageous. So it's not a good thing to be handed. Um, it, it first appears as a term, as far as I know, in 1606 from Macbeth. Um, and it's in this famous scene from Act 1, Scene 7. If it were done when tis done, then to a well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here. But here upon this bank and shoal of time we jump the life to come. But in these cases we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instructions, which, being taught, return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison chalice to our own lips. So it's Macbeth trying to decide whether he should or shouldn't really go and kill King Duncan. Because although it might initially seem like a good thing because he can become king, he knows really it's going to bite him in the butt. Um, and that, that imagery of drinking the poison chalice is probably in turn uh, inspired by Jesus drinking from a chalice in preparation for the crucifixion. So it's sort of an inversion of that, as a lot of Macbeth is with its religious antitheses. Uh, 18th century, let's go there. We've got plant names from then, like poison ivy. Um, poison ivy, by the way, is not ivy. Uh, it's a toxicodendron. And the irritating oil it secretes is urushio, which is um, comes from Japanese, meaning lacquer tree. Poison gas as a term is recorded from 1915. But one of the ones I'm going to talk a bit about more is poison letter. You familiar with poison letters? Ever sent any? <laughs> Tempted. Thought about it. <laughs> Never have done, though. I was going to say, working in um, social media is pretty similar, really. I mean... I mean, Twitter is just one big poison letter, isn't it? It is. It is indeed, yeah. <laughs> so, a poison pen letter, for those not familiar, it's uh, a note containing unpleasant, abusive, malicious statements uh, or accusations about either the recipient or a third party. Usually sent anonymously, um, and often by employing a sort of uh, ransom note effect to avoid being detected by your handwriting. Um, they are mostly intended to cause upset rather than blackmail, which is specifically intended to um, obtain something from someone. So although they may look similar, they've got, got different intents. They were really popular in the early 20th century, um, despite thinking that this kind of um, slander and libel on uh, Twitter might be a modern phenomenon. I can't pinpoint the exact origin of the phrase, but I think it probably comes from the reporting of court cases uh, like the one I'm about to tell you. So uh, the this is from 1909 in the state of New Jersey in the USA, in the city of Elizabeth. Uh, and it's about a person who, as the papers put it, um, possessed a serpent typewriter and launched a campaign of hurtful verbal harassment against some of the city's best people with a series of anonymous letters. They say some were innocuous, some were cat-like, and some were downright indecent. Uh, one of the letters that was made public uh, accused a respectable person, um, Elizabeth, of 
prostituting herself to men in New York. It said, she keeps one or two rumours and does a little dressmaking to hide her double life. Look at her clothes of elegance. Yet her husband is a baggage checker on the PRR, which is a Pennsylvania Railroad, in winter, and purser on an Albany, which is the Hudson River Ferry, boat in summer. Never saw $80 a month in his life, yet they keep a maid and she's on the go all the time. Once a week she meets an Elizabeth man over on Staten Island, and once a week she meets a New York man in NYC. And in that way she makes $40 a month. She will do anything but honest work for money. Now the chief victim of this uh, onslaught through the post was uh, Mrs Florence Jones, uh, wife of a dentist, Charles F Jones, who was the treasurer of the New Jersey State Dental Society. They lived on Madison Avenue, which is very fancy. Um, not only did Mrs Jones receive these letters, uh, they were... <laughs> <laughs> I can laugh about it because it's so long ago, it's fine. Uh, the, the Jones household were inundated with free literature on obesity, insanity, alcoholism and drug addiction, all of which had been requested by notes with Mrs Jones's name and address attached to them. It's like when you sign your friends up for embarrassing email scams and things like that. <laughs> Not that I've ever done that to you. Um, <laughs> so in 1914... It was found out that it was actually the Joneses' next-door neighbour, Mrs Anna Pollard, uh, the 43-year-old daughter of William Henry Harrison Dunn, wife of New Jersey Public Service Commission, electrical engineer Nelson Pollard, etc., etc. Um, I won't read that. So it was Mrs... Uh, the highly esteemed Mrs Pollard was nothing less than the president of the Elizabeth Ladies' Aid Society and a member of the Christ Episcopal Church and the Boudinot chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. She was identified from the nuances in the typewriter she used, and it was after this case that people started using block print letters and cutouts from newspapers in order to avoid it. In fact, she did that herself. After the initial trial, where she was sort of let off uh, with a warning, she went back to targeting the same people, but just with these cutout letters, and then she was caught again. Um, <laughs> this continued throughout the 20th century, and it's so funny when you look at, like, who did it in the court cases it's all upper society it's just a thing they love to do like gossip slag each other off <laughs> you know make up all these lies send these poison pen letters that's why i was kind of like oh she's the daughter of this person she was president of this society it, it was so typical it was all these people and i think partly because of that it ends up in lots of crime novels in the 30s and 40s um in 1942 agatha christie based one of her miss marple mysteries on the concept of the poison pen letter in the moving finger um she refers to the anonymous letter writer who sets uh, up a murder as poison pen um until kind of it's resolved when i tell you what happens um even Enid Blyton had a go in 1946 with The Mystery of the Spiteful Letters. <laughs> <laughs> spiteful. Spiteful. <laughs> um, it made me laugh because it reminded me of like how much we slagged her off in the smuggling episode. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> Talking about the famous five and John from S Club. <laughs> oh, poor Enid. Um, <clears throat> I've got some more stuff on Agatha Christie. Uh, so in Agatha Christie's novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, the poison in that was strychnine. Uh, strychnine is, it's a very toxic alkaloid that affects the nervous system. It leads to muscle spasms, convulsions and death. Um, if you take enough of it, 
Um, its use as a poison was not uncommon <laughs> in 20th century mystery fiction. In fact, in this one, it's Poirot's first book. It's his first case. Um, it's strychnine poisoning. It comes from a tree, so Strychnos nux vomica, which is a tree native to tropical forests in southern India, Sri Lanka, and Indonesia. Uh, they grow up to about 12 meters tall, and it has this uh, crooked, short, thick trunk. And the fruit is orange in color, about the size of a large apple, has a hard rind, and then has these five seeds in it, which are covered in like a soft, woolly substance, and they look like flattened, hard discs. So they are where, um, at that time, they were getting strychnine from, and it was imported into Europe as a poison to kill rodents and small predators. Most of these kind of poisons that you hear about in crime fiction, originally they're all like rodent poison. Uh, it does make you think whether it was a good idea to <laughs> import such a variety of poisons. Uh, in Agatha Christie's novel, Five Little Pigs, also known as murder in retrospect, the poison used is aconitine, which is derived from the deadly plant known as monk's hood or wolfsbane. So aconitum, um, also known as leopardsbane, devil's helmet and blue rocket, it's a genus of over 250 species of flowering plants that belong to the family Ranunculaceae. Um, and these are herbaceous perennial plants. They grow mostly in the mountainous parts of the Northern Hemisphere. So you find them across North America, Europe and Asia. The name Aconitum comes from the Greek word, which um, may come from uh, dart or javelin, which is acon. And that's because the tips of the darts or javelins were poisoned with uh, that substance. It could also come from Aconai, which means rocky ground on which the plant was thought to grow, um, which may seem like it's, it, it could be more likely, except that actually quite a lot of cultures have named similarly kind of Wolfsbane after using it on poisoned arrows across Asia as well, so I think it's very likely. Um, the English name, Monk's Hood refers to the uh, cylindrical helmet of the flower called the Gallia, um, which kind of distinguishes it as well. Uh, there's another <laughs> ignominious um, history with this. In 1524, we get the first recorded human trial of poison and seeking a cure for poisons with Pope Clement VII. Um, and he intentionally poisoned prisoners with aconite-laced marzipan to test the effects of the antidote. So the treated prisoner would survive and the untreated prisoner would suffer a painful death. <laughs> so that was nice of Pope Clement. I <laughs> uh, haven't finished with Agatha Christie. So uh, she has a novel called The Pale Horse and in that one uses thallium. Thallium is a very toxic, heavy metal. It doesn't occur naturally, but it occurs kind of as a byproduct. Uh, product of various processes um, <laughs> it leads to symptoms like gastrointestinal disease neurological issues hair loss it was used quite a lot um, in poisoning cases in, in real life as well so um, it was uh, it was known so you might be wondering why is Agatha Christie using so much poison as um, as a method of, of murdering and uh, you know and why such a wide range well, she um, she actually worked as a hospital dispenser during World War One, so she had quite a, an extensive knowledge of poisons and their effects through kind of working 
in uh, in pharmaceuticals. And I think that's kind of largely the reason why the effects of the poisons play such a big role in um, in all of their writings. Got a question for you. Were you ever told at school that if you suck your pen or your pencil, you'll get ink or lead poisoning? Um, I was, yes, unfortunately. Did you believe it? Um, I probably did and just carried on anyway. <laughs> I think I didn't believe the pencil because I knew it wasn't lead. It's graphite. But I think I probably did think that ink was quite toxic. Um, yeah. It isn't. As it turns out, it's not mm. particularly toxic. Like if you had, if you drank a lot of ink, you would get an upset stomach. But it's not, um, it's not quite as toxic as you think. It's like I remember kids at school used to like stab each other with biros and be like, "Oh, you've got ink poisoning now." <laughs> that is not enough to poison you. Annoying, yes. Poisonous, no. Um, the the most kind of poisonous thing I found about the ink is that some permanent markers contain xylene. Not mm-hmm. all of them, but some of them do. And you need to look out for that one because I know, <laughs> you know, like how people like to give themselves sharpie tattoos and stuff <laughs> if they're yes. bored at exam yeah. school. Xylene is one of those ones that you preferably don't want on your skin because it can leach into the membrane and it is much more toxic than the other things they put in pens. So xylene isn't great to avoid that one. But as for the rest, not true. Um, but I thought I thought mentioning the the potential of lead poisoning from pencil might segue nicely onto your next section. Yes, lead poisoning. Fun, fun, fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, obviously you're trying to link it to drinks. So, um, lead and winemaking. Um, it does actually have a history. It's been used for millennia in uh, winemaking and storage. Uh, it dates back to at least 2000 BC, uh, where lead was used as both a preservative and a sweetener when making wine. Um, obviously going to talk about the Romans. I feel like they've got like they're most famous for fucking themselves up with lead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they are. So in ancient Rome, a common method to sweeten wine was by adding a syrup, which was created from boiling grape juice, in leaded vessels, which, when heated, would spread toxins into the liquid. Um, Studies have found that Roman wine may have held up to as much as 20 milligrams of lead per litre. Um, there are many, many records of essentially Roman doctors describing very precisely the symptoms of lead poisoning. Uh, unfortunately, though, the Romans were not aware of the metal's toxicity and they used lead across a variety of industries, not just winemaking. Um, it was around 200 BC that a Greek physician called Nicander, um, he raised suspicion. He thought maybe this lead might be causing this poisoning. <laughs> um, so he started to put two and two together, but um, Rome still kind of ignored it. The, the suspicion did expand to ancient Rome, but they still ignored him, carried on using lead. And the symptoms of lead poisoning continued to plague Europe for centuries. Uh, lead sugars remained a very popular way to sweeten wines and balance tannins. Uh, it was in 1696 that the connection between the sickness and the use of lead in winemaking was officially discovered. Um, it was a physician, Urbard Gockel. He was in Ulm. 
Uh, and his discovery resulted in a local ban on the use of metal in wine. However, it did appear to continue elsewhere. Uh, proof of that um, was shown from a 19th century shipwreck, which was found in 2010. Uh, there were some champagne bottles found aboard, and they were still revealing to contain high amounts of lead. So, despite I all love... the warning signals, they ignored it. <laughs> I love a shipwreck discovery, but there's always some kind of booze facts. I reckon every other episode we've managed to somehow still keep putting pirates into uh, all of these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so lead's contact with wine has persisted in more recent years, um, but not like the way the Romans were doing it. Um, it's through glass, actually, glass manufacturing. So lead has the ability to produce ultra-thin and ultra-clear glass products. Um, but the metal was also used in wine capsules up until 1996 uh, when the FDA prohibited the use of metal. Um, so although these capsules are no longer in use, if you do have a wine collection that's kind of dating back to 1991 or earlier, so if you've got some schmancy wines that are 30 years old, be careful. <laughs> um, <laughs> So the, the thing to keep an eye out for is white residue on the bottle's neck. That can indicate a leak and some dangerous reactions. So if you've got some very old wine and you notice some white residue, maybe don't drink it or you'll end up like a Roman. Right. Deed. Deed. <laughs> I think Deed. the earliest I've got is 97. I'm all right. Oh, be very careful. You might have some rogues still using the lead because they, I don't know, had some to use up. Uh, I'll give it a go. <laughs> um, I'm not done with uh, etymology I've still got some words to word about um, I thought this was interesting so when you when you look up um, you know words in the, when you read the dictionary as much as I do um, one of the interesting things is they give you a graph of usage over time so you can go back from like 1800 to present day and see how often it's used per million words so in 1800 Poison, uh, as a word, was used 18 times per million. That's how it was trending. In 19, by 1980, that had gone down to about four per million, which is its lowest um, in all the history. And then it goes on a steady increase in the 21st century when we're back up to eight per million. Which leads us to conclude that in the past decade, we have been getting increasingly poisonous. <laughs> it's been used more often as a word than it, um, than it had been. Make of that what you will. Perhaps related, do you know what the 2018 word of the year was? 2018? Yeah. This is before COVID. Yes, it is. This is pre-COVID. The dictionary gave us a word of the year in 2018. Probably relevant to the subject as a clue. Um... <laughs> it's not just like banana. <laughs> <laughs> relevant to COVID or re relevant to this podcast? No, relevant theme. to this. <laughs> Stop talking right, about okay. COVID. <laughs> um, oh, God. Pre-drinks. I'm trying to think what we were doing in 2018 before there was a pandemic. And we were allowed to have pre-drinks then because we were allowed out. So I'm saying pre-drinks. Wow. No. Uh, <laughs> toxic. Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, I just tell you it was relevant. <laughs> 
Toxic. kind of relevant. Toxic was the uh, <laughs> word of the year in 2018. Um, this is interesting why I'll go into it. So Toxic, it wasn't because of Britney. Um, toxic I was gonna originated, say yeah, right. Let's come back to that. To- so Toxic originated in the mid-1600s as the Latin Toxicus, uh, and that comes from the Greek meaning bow poison. There's a lot of poison bows and arrows going on in uh, in this world. So it went from being something very literal like that until the 20th century. And then around then we get the, well, from the 50s really, we get the emergence of toxic waste. Um, and our, we start to think of it more relating to the environment. Uh, in the 80s, we start to see a number of books on self-help and workplace dynamics where toxic begins to uh, be introduced as a behaviour buzzword. And then after that, we see toxic relationships emerge with the sort of self-help um, late 80s, 90s. Hmm. So we use toxic to describe everything from chemicals, gas, to masculinity, to relationships. So it's become this blanket descriptor of anything deeply, but often invisibly harmful. Um, and you might wonder why toxic rather than poisonous, if poison was kind of a more popular word for, you know, uh, for this sort of thing. And I think the, the the lexicographer's theories is that poison has more of an association with nature, like snakes or poison ivy, but toxic can't be distinguished so easily and it has an insidious edge of mystery. So it's scarier than poisonous because it's more inorganic. Uh, we generally don't see poisonous pharmaceuticals, for example. We use it more to describe something that's artificial and doesn't belong in nature. So that's the theory is why it's kind of spread out into this mass metaphor. While we're on that as well, poison not to be confused with venom, uh, which is produced by an animal and injected or delivered through a wound, uh, which makes me think of the drink, snake bites. Mm, yum. You familiar? <laughs> I love a snake bite. Oh, yeah. Takes me back. I knew full well. You'd, I was going to say, do you have any stories? You probably can't remember any, but I was. Um, does it sum up any images for you? It does. Because obviously we used to drink a lot of snake bites at university. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm ashamed to say that we used to try and make them even more potent. Um, so we'd often have a snake bite and we'd drop into it... Um, you know the aftershock shots? We drop a shot of aftershock into a snake bite. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like something you do. Um but likewise, snake bite was very much a university drink. It was it was mm. something you would typically get there. Um so for those of you who don't know, snake bite is equal parts lager and cider. Um very commonly, uh, as I have had it a few times, you add a dash of black currant cordial and then it would be known as a snake bite in black or a diesel. Uh, there are lots of different regional recipes and names, for example, your version. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it became popular in the 1980s uh, in the UK. And, um, but it's, it's kind of, it's managed to survive, I think, purely in universities. In 2001, uh, Bill Clinton, former president of the USA, was refused a snake bite when he ordered one at the Old <laughs> Bell Tavern in Harrogate. <laughs> uh, pub manager Jamie Allen said it's illegal to serve it here in the UK. Have you heard that it's illegal to serve uh, snake bites? Yeah, and I'm sure it was around about the end of my kind of time at university that we 
stop being able to buy it. It's something to do with um, like mixing drinks. Like I know you're not allowed to have more than a double measure of a spirit at the same time, and it was similar to that. It was like you weren't allowed those two measures together. It was odd, mm -hmm. but I have heard that. So I mean, I mean, first of all, what was Bill Clinton doing ordering a snake bite? I'm not sure. I want to know. Um, he is POTUS, Tim. <laughs> he is POTUS. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> serving POTUS, to be honest. Um, okay, so here's the answer to that. No, it's not illegal. Um, it's not illegal to do that at all. It's just two harps, which you can sell. Um, but it's generally not served um, mm. at the discretion of bar managers because it's consumed almost entirely by young people who are going to make a mess of themselves. <laughs> so <laughs> there is no magic reaction it is just, you know, mixing probably something four or five percent with something four or five percent. So it comes out at the same strength. Um, although I say that with a slight proviso because I went to university in Devon. Um, and if you asked for something mixed with cider, you'd really better check that it's something weak like Strongbow and not the local scrumpy because that really could push Ooh. you over the edge. <laughs> yeah. He says from experience. <laughs> um, yeah, that made me think of that. Uh, I'm going to get towards the reason why... I'm drinking wine, uh, and in particular, Carmenera. So, phylloxera. Heard of phylloxera? Makes me think of laryngitis. I don't know why. Just same letters, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's diseasy, isn't it? It's diseasy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, when I was thinking about poisons, obviously not just kind of thinking about poisons we ingest, but what poisons drinks, as in what can poison the things that make them. Um, and the phylloxera plague, or just commonly known as phylloxera, was this vineyard pest that caused widespread destruction of grapevines in Europe um, and some other wine producing regions during the late 19th century. So it's, it's a pest that's native to North America and it was introduced to Europe unintentionally, uh, most likely through the importation of North American grapevines or rootstocks. The first recorded outbreak was in Roquemore in the Gard region of France in the early 1860s. And it's a it's a small aphid-like insect that feeds on the roots of grapevines. And it damages the roots, which leads to um, the vine getting ill um, and ultimately its death. And one of the reasons it was so damaging is that the insect uh, really kind of proliferates um, quickly because it has both sexual and asexual reproductive cycles so it just multiplies very quickly. Um, so lots of grapevines uh, and vineyards were lost to this um, and you know for these regions as well like you know these villages these towns were making it was pretty devastating because that was their major export so it was a very damaging thing to happen they needed to find a solution so scientists and researchers were on it, including Jules-Emile Planchamp in France and Thomas Munson in the US. And uh, they were looking for ways to combat it. They eventually uh, discovered that North American grapevine species were resistant because they'd co-evolved together. You know mm -hmm. how, I mean, you see this, especially with um, poisons and toxins in plants, is there's usually something that can stomach it. Um, that's co-evolution for you. So what they did was they grafted some of the North American grapevines to the European grapevines to make them more resistant, which is very labour intensive, but highly effective to uh, pre prevent the phylloxera damage. So over time, the vineyards managed to recover. And now around the world, you will find that most of the vines are grafted with the North American ones in order 
uh, to continue that. There is still research going on to how they can make uh, the wine industry more resilient against things like that in the future as well. But yes, it was very dem uh, very devastating, and the only way was to interbreed with uh, North America. <laughs> as a vine, not as a people. Although, oh, if you want to. You know. um, <laughs> right, Carmenere. So Carmenere is a red grape variety that was originally from Bordeaux. And it's it long been thought that this was one of the varieties that became extinct because of phylloxera. Um, however, it was uh, later on, I think in the 90s, in the 1990s, it was found to still exist in Chile. So for many years, Chilean winemakers believed that the vines they'd been cultivating were actually Merlot grapes. And that occurs because Carmenere vines very closely resemble Merlot vines uh, in terms of their leaves, their growth patterns, and the appearance of the grapes. While Phylloxera was devastating vineyards in Europe, including Bordeaux in the 19th century, it didn't reach Chile because it's very geographically isolated. Um, and as a result, a lot of the old Bordeaux, Bordeaux grape, grape, dear me, <laughs> Freud, um, as a result, many of the old Bordeaux grape varieties, um, including Carmenere and, you know, specifically hundreds of years old vines as well, survived in Chile without being affected by the phylloxera plague. And it was discovered by this uh, French enologist, actually, in the mid-90s, a guy named Jean-Michel Boussicot. He went to Chile as part of a viticultural research project, I think we'd all like to do that, and noticed that some of the vines that were believed to be Merlot contained characteristics that didn't really match Merlot from other regions. And so then they began to suspect it might be Carmenere. They did genetic testing on it and confirmed that indeed it was. Um, so after that, the Chilean authorities began to reevaluate their vineyards, confirm the presence of Carmenere in lots of places, did their DNA testing, um, and managed to distinguish it from other varieties. And once it had been officially recognised, they were paying more attention to its unique characteristics, um, how they could produce more distinctive wines. And it began to be marketed as a Chilean speciality uh, and gained that popularity uh, all around the world. You know, even before they realised it was Carmenere, people were like, why is Chilean Merlot so good? Because it didn't have the best <laughs> reputation in other places. But I'm like, you can always get a good one from there. But it's part of the reason, I think, in general, why Chile's, um, Chile's wine is so spectacular, aside from their unique kind of climate and position. They've just got lots mm -hmm. of really old uh, rootstocks going on as well because they've avoided phylloxera. Um, I think that's probably a good time for you to talk more about wine you want to talk about yeah. some some taints love to talk about some taints and wine mm -hmm. uh wine adulteration oh not just taint but adultery adultery taint whatever you want anything goes it's our podcast we can mm -hmm. do what we want um so uh wine adulteration it probably started becoming an issue in the 19th century but the kind of potential of it being a problem was spotted in the early 18th century. Um, in London, wine merchants drafted a series of proposals to the House of Commons. Uh, it was one of several attempts made to better regulate their trade and prevent the circulation of adulterated goods. Uh, in these proposals, they insisted on the need to take an oath before the Justice of Peace to prevent the sale of damaged wines. 
While some practices, such as the addition of egg whites, were considered absolutely necessary for the process of wine production, the addition of sophisticating ingredients, such as English sweet syrup and cider, was undesirable, as they substantially altered the taste and the quality of a wine. In this context, in 1795, a medical man named John Wright uh, he published an essay intended to instruct his readers on adulteration, as well as on the useful or injurious effects that these beverages could have on human health. As his inquiries on port wines demonstrated, adulteration was a highly lucrative business, allowing merchants to sell poor quality wine at the same price as outstanding bottles. Uh, wine adulteration continued to be a widely debated issue in the 19th century. Uh, in, a, in an article from the Morning Post, uh, dated 1857, they reported that not even the wines used in religious ceremonies were exempt from it. Uh, so apparently a reverend, Mr John Purchase, was complaining that the sacramental cup was not exempt from adulteration which led to them uh, doing a chemical analysis of the wine um, a Cambridge chemist found that, indeed, the Reverend's wine was tainted. It was a compound of treacle, spirits of wine, water, a small quantity of genuine but very sour wine. Which was not very nice. That sounds pretty awful. Um, yeah, not nice at all. Um, but the reason why it was so prolific around about this time was due to the phylloxera epidemic. Um, it, it decimated some of the best vines, uh, and therefore people were having to get a bit creative, I guess. Mm -hmm. Can you just, <laughs> um, can you just maybe imagine how upset we would have been if we'd lived through that? Oh my God, I couldn't, I can't imagine, <laughs> I don't want to. We had COVID, which is bad enough. They closed all the pubs. <laughs> I keep talking about COVID. You do, get over it, mate. <laughs> I know we started this podcast because of the pandemic, but at some point we've got to move on. <laughs> um, so yes, in 1890, an article published by the Chicago-based newspaper Daily Into Ocean reported on the great losses that the epidemic caused for the French wine industry. The country used to produce nearly a thousand million gallons of wine prior to the phylloxera epidemic. Its production had decreased to 546 million gallons in 1887 according to the author's sources. Still a lot of wine, but mm -hmm. um, a lot less. But not enough. <laughs> <laughs> not enough, absolutely. Um, so consequently, ruined winemakers had to import foreign wines to blend them with French wines or produce artificial wines. Many attempts to imitate the wine and create wine alternatives developed to make up for this lost wine. In the process, this is where the poison comes in. <laughs> Again, accidental poisoning. <laughs> Um, aniline, an, aniline, aniline dyes. Um, so fuchsine or magenta were often used uh, as additives to improve a wine's colour. Uh, it's a practice that winemakers continued to resort to even after the wine industry had recovered. If your wine's not looking as marketable, whack some magenta in there. <laughs> no one will notice. They'll just, you know, might get a bit ill. Uh, yeah, it was very dangerous. Uh, the poisonous substance arsenic was also used in their production process. So it was very cheap 
to get arsenic and it was used for all sorts of stuff rat poison weed killer uh, but it was also part of the production process of these new dyes that people were chucking in their wine as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, arsenic was also connected with criminal poisoning cases, and it's therefore not surprising that its use in the adulteration of wines caused similar accidents. I love that this is classed as an accident. Um, the poisoning of an entire village in the area of Bordeaux in 1889. <laughs> Somebody put a little bit too much of the dye in the wine and just killed the village off. Wow. Whoops, arsenic. I'll talk about arsenic later okay. in a bit more depth. I'll keep to uh, wine adulteration. Um, methods to detect adulterated foodstuffs were soon propagated. Um, so they were, supposed, they were supposed to enable customers to use simple methods to determine whether or not their wines were safe to drink. Uh, by 1895, adverts were circulating in the press to warn readers of the dangers of adulteration, promoted greater caution when purchasing their goods. Uh, adverts also partly responded to growing consumer activism, activism, which emerged at the turn of the 19th century in the wake of numerous public health scandals involving adulteration cases, like the Bordeaux village. Uh-huh. Uh, however, in many warnings against the dangers of these dyes, it was just another marketing technique to sell supposedly safer products. We just constantly stumble upon, upon marketing bullshit in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So similar um, stories all the time. We, we find something in a shipwreck. Um, <laughs> people are putting weird stuff into drinks and it harms people. And then that drink gets a bad reputation. And eventually <laughs> it all gets messed up by marketing anyway. well another marketing opportunity here um eno's fruit salt i found an advert from let me check have i got the date i haven't but let's say 19th century because we're there sometime in the 19th century um this advert for eno's fruit salt was circulating i'll read it out drawing an overdraft on the bank of life is the headline Uh uh-huh Experience shows that poisonous aniline dyes, pink or chemically coloured sherbet or acidulated sherbet masked with sugar, hazardous brain tipples or any form of pick-me-up, mild ales, port wine, dark sherries, sweet champagne, liquors and brandies are all very apt to disagree. While light white wines and a gin or cold whisky, largely diluted with mineral water, charged only with natural gas, will be found the least objectionable. Eno's fruit salt is peculiarly adapted for any constitutional weakness of the liver. It possesses the power of reparation where digestion has been disturbed or lost through alcoholic drinks, fatty substances or wants of exercise and places the invalid on the right track to health. If its great value in keeping the body in health were universally known, no family would be without it. We've got a real review as well. A uh-huh. gentleman writes, I have used Eno's fruit salt in headaches and almost every form of disease for nearly 25 years. As a rule, I found it everything I could wish. Its action was always natural, simple, soothing, yet potent when required, without hazardous force such as brain tipple or pick-me-up in any form or condition. Always did good, never any harm can be used for any length of time without the least danger. Yours truly, truth. Wow. <laughs> truth out there, writing reviews. 
Um, so despite the uh, further awareness of wine adulteration and growing fears of its impact on health, uh, the practice continued. Did you learn nothing from the Romans? <laughs> um, as testified by the case of Patrick McCluskey, uh, he was tried in 1919 for selling adulterated port. Um, it does seem to be a thing of the past, the addition of fushin or these dyes or arsenic to wines. Um, but the dangers in wine production don't stop there, and I will speak about those later, I think. Oh. Spoiler, it might be about arsenic. <laughs> yeah, I think we can guess what that is. <laughs> uh, got a question for you. Mm, What's the best poisonous song? Oh... I mean, we've already talked about Britney's toxic song, so we can't... Can we talk about that? I mean, if you think it is. Yeah, there's another song. Your Poison. That one. That's great. That's the one I've got. <laughs> yeah. I've got Poison by Alice Cooper. Well, so Britney's toxic, first of all, a couple of facts. It's her, it was her first and only Grammy um, toxic, and it was originally offered to Kylie Minogue, and she turned it down. It's not a Kylie song, is it? No, it was it was good for Britney, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I've got I've got poison. You're poison by Alice Cooper <laughs> because it's just it's more the feeling is more in keeping with poison. I think. Uh, yeah. Do you remember the music video? Is it? Is has he got a snake? He, or am I just so still thinking he, about Britney? He always had a snake. <laughs> he always yeah. You're thinking about Britney, but also, um, and it wasn't that. I don't think it was that video. But um, she, um, no, Alice Cooper had um, a pet snake anyway that was often mm. kind of uh, brought out. But no, the music video, I remember seeing this a lot, like back in the day on MTV, particularly when it was October. Um, and he's like chained to this weird mechanism and he's and there's a ghostly woman looming over him. Uh, but there's, there's two versions of the video. I only remember seeing the one version where she's clothed. Uh, <laughs> and there's another one where she's topless. Uh, <laughs> of course. Him. Yeah. What country do you think gave Poison by Alice Cooper its highest chart position? I'm going to say Germany. Yeah. I thought you were going to go for one of the rock Eurovision nations, either Germany yeah. or Finland. Uh, but no, it was the UK. Number two. Oh. Number two in the UK, his highest position. Uh, his real name, by the way, is Vincent Damon Fernier. Oh, that's not... Uh, yeah, you can see why he did Alice Cooper. <laughs> yeah. He was born in Detroit, but um, he and his family moved to Phoenix, Arizona, uh, when he was young. And he used to run a restaurant in downtown Phoenix um, called Cooper's Town, which was opened in 98, but um, sadly closed in 2017. The motto of the restaurant was, where jocks and rock meet. And it featured a 22-inch long sandwich called Big Unit. Um, oh and I have been there. I have been to that bar. Have you had a big unit? I did not have a big unit. I think I had a really good chilli from what I remember. Um, <laughs> I don't remember what I drank, though. So probably just a beer or something. Um, but yeah, it was very nice. I enjoyed it. It was nice. Mm. It's very hot in Phoenix. You, um, you need a cold beer now and then. And that, folks, brings us to the end of part one. Uh, part two will be in a couple of weeks, just before Halloween, so make sure you're fully stocked up on all your favourite poisons. Um, if Alice Cooper and Brittany weren't the bangers you were looking for, then uh, we've got one more option to play you out on today.
don't give a knickers about your lace. This isn't the place to be showing your disgrace. So Mrs. Miggins, get your ass lick out my face. And I don't want to be in cyanide you, nor hemlocked up upon your bed. And I will formaldehyde from you. It was nice, but my lips are turning blue and the rice in is getting crispy. Get your ass lick out my face, Mrs. Miggins, and I don't give a knickers about your lace. This isn't the place to be showing your disgrace. Mrs. Miggins, get your ass lick out my face. Mm-hmm. Get your ass lick out my 